0: Good morning, everyone. Uh, great to see everybody this morning. Um, there's not a greater joy than to um, be together and sing songs like that. Um, not a greater joy than to have a relationship with God, where we're able to understand more and more as we grow the depth of what it means. You know, as we sing, "Love Lifted Me," you know, just there's so many so many hymns that. As we grow in our faith and understand God and His work more and more, you know the same lyrics hold so much more depth and meaning. And I think that's that's one of those songs. Um, it's great to see those who are visiting with us. Um, it's great to see Mitchell. Uh, Mitchell, it's very good to see you. And Miss Lucy, very good to see you this morning. Um, and everyone else who's who's visiting with us this morning. Um, we're going to be talking about baptism this morning. And this is just going to be a very simple, very basic kind of lesson. Um, but the point of this lesson is to equip us to be able to feel comfortable doing something very similar to what we see Paul doing and Aquila and Priscilla here and what we read in the scripture reading. So just to review a little bit, Apollos in verse 24 was someone who was mighty in the scriptures. And this was in Ephesus. We have a teacher. And we have a teacher who is teaching accurately about Jesus and was very fervent in spirit, so very, very zealous, very passionate, very well-equipped, very knowledgeable. But you notice in verse 25, the issue specifically says he was acquainted only with the baptism of John. And Aquila and Priscilla, as they were in Ephesus and heard him teaching, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Well, in chapter 19... Paul, after Apollos, goes to Achaia, which Corinth is in the region of Achaia, so Apollos now in Corinth, and Paul passes through the upper country of chapter 19, verse 1, and he comes to Ephesus and finds disciples. And I don't think it's too much to imply that these would have been disciples who would have heard Apollos' teaching, because they are acquainted with, in verse 3, whose baptism? The baptism of John. So you have Aquila and Priscilla helping a teacher know the way more excellently. And you have Paul, when he comes to Ephesus, you have him helping people who are, um, they've heard the teaching, they're disciples, but now the hearers, the, the learners, the disciples, now they need help understanding things more accurately. And we see Paul doing something that I think is very important. He asks them very wise. Very fundamental questions. So, the purpose of this lesson is when we're thinking about baptism, and as um, we're striving to grow in evangelism, the reality is I think all of us have friends, acquaintances, um, family members where they may have a great zeal for the Lord, they may have a kind of faith in the Lord, um, but this is one of those really, really major things that oftentimes is either misunderstood. And it's misunderstood oftentimes because, very commonly, um, what the Bible says about baptism just is not taught or advocated. And so I think we're in a situation very similar where, although it's exciting that people around us are very often excited about the Lord and very fervent, even very well educated, maybe, in the scriptures, there's still a need to do again what Paul does and ask very wise questions. So you notice he asks two questions. Verse 2, he finds these disciples and he asks again a very fundamental, very revealing question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you, were, when you believed? And well, okay, well that reveals no. They don't know about the Holy Spirit. And isn't it interesting in verse 3, what does he connect that to? His next question is, well, into what were you baptized? So Paul is connecting receiving the Spirit with baptism here. So if they don't know what the Spirit is, then there must be something wrong with what happened when they were baptized or what what were you baptized into then? Well, now that's very revealing because now, you know, they clarify, well, we were baptized into John's baptism. And okay, light bulb, verse 4. Well, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who is coming after him, that is in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paula had laid hands on them, the... Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying they were in all about 12 men So again I the point of this lesson is to equip us to feel more comfortable or even maybe even to be more aware of the need to ask very helpful questions to try to draw out these very significant issues and clarify these very fundamental things. And it can it can be something that can be challenging or intimidating. Um, and so what this lesson is going to be is dealing with conversations I've had. And I'm going to go through this lesson after this first, like why is this important? After we get through this first section, I'm going to walk through with you ways that I study with others in a way that I have found to be very helpful, very simple, and very clarifying for conversation. And I don't think this is something where... You have to have a sit-down study. It could be something you could bring up just in conversation and ask questions like what Paul brings up here in chapter 19. So why is it so important that we ask questions to people around us about salvation? And just as was mentioned, this, this I think, it's not too much to say that the most widely believed teachings on salvation that in the world around us, in, you know, the Christian world around us, the most widely believed teachings on salvation are, at best, very critically incomplete. And I think that's what you see with Apollos, is although he knew Jesus, and he was teaching accurately about him, there, there was something critically incomplete about his understanding of the gospel. He was only acquainted with John's baptism. And chapter 19, you have disciples, and I, and I think implied disciples of Jesus, But again, something is critically incomplete, and that needs to be clarified, right? So, at best, that's what I think we very commonly run into. Or, at worst, there is teaching that directly contradicts what the Bible clearly says about the role that baptism plays in our salvation. And acknowledging that and dealing with that, I think, can push us in two directions. Either it can tempt us to feel very intimidated or ashamed, And this may come in the form of, you know, kind of being discouraged that, you know, so many people have faith and here I am seemingly having to be the downer, almost like the bad guy and I've got to bring up the seemingly bad news that, hey, you know, the Bible says this, you know, and then, well, that may imply that a person's not saved or maybe their family members are not actually saved and and that may really rock someone's world and that will be a very uncomfortable, hard thing. And the temptation can be as you try to have conversations like that, Um, you may get potentially worn out, intimidated, or feel ashamed for what the Bible says. And um, I really want to encourage you that that, that's that's not the solution or the direction that we ought to go in. Um, But rather, we ought to seek love. And I think love recognizes that God has a way of saving people. God is very clear about that. And we should be indignant that the world teaches a very false sense of security that leads people to believe that they are in a fully right relationship with God when in actuality that has not actually been accomplished yet. And so that in love should make us very jealous to help people understand and learn and discover what the Bible really says, even if it's not just a one conversation thing. And we should strive to seek courage from the Lord and wisdom from the Lord because, again, this is about serving, right? This isn't just about us learning what the Bible says and then kind of patting ourselves on the back and withdrawing ourselves from others and kind of scoffing at all of this confusion in the world. The, The more we know about what the Bible says, the more we are responsible to serve others and to equip others to learn the truth and to kind of lead that path on discovering the truth. And Romans 10, 1 through 3, I have found very helpful. So we're, we're going to be in Acts mainly, but we're going to go to Romans, and then we're going to go to Mark for just a minute. But go to go to Romans. It's the next book after the book of Acts. And although the situation Paul is talking about in Romans is slightly different, I do think there are helpful principles that are communicated in Romans 10. Um, So I'll I'll read this, the first three verses, and then kind of talk about the principles that I think are very relevant for the subject here. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Now he's talking about Jews who are not Christians. They're very zealous for God, seemingly very genuine, that zeal seemingly, but they have not accepted God's method of salvation, faith and Christ and so verse two, for I testify about them that they have a zeal for God. But not in accordance with knowledge, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. So, in chapter 9, as Paul begins to get into this subject specifically that is being continued in chapter 10, Paul brings out the fact that if he could be accursed and separated from Christ to save his Jewish brethren, he would do that. And that he has constant sorrow, unceasing grief in his heart for his brethren who are Jews according to the flesh who have this zeal, but they are not submitting themselves to God's plan, God's ways. So again, there's something that I think is modeled here that is very important for us to learn, that it is good to be encouraged when a person, when a person has zeal for the Lord that if there are people who have excitement for God, they have a passion for God, great! That that is extremely encouraging, and I don't want to discourage that. And if somebody has an incomplete knowledge of the gospel, I don't want that to all of a sudden nullify all this excitement that they may have otherwise for God, right? So we need to learn to be encouraged by zeal, but also at the same time be very honest and grounded in where our foundations are, right? So we can be both encouraged by zeal, but still realize, well, what God says about salvation is still the truth, and it's not up to us to change that just because there's so many people who don't believe it, and so again, you know, we just need to help people to see what God's ways are. So the issue, again, in chapter 10, 1 through 3, is you have people who have zeal, but they are not submitting themselves to God's method of salvation. And that's very relatable, where we have people who are very excited about God, oftentimes very zealous. We live in a very Christian society, quote unquote, um, whatever that might look like or whatever that may mean. Um, But again, in verse two, that zeal is oftentimes not in accordance with knowledge of really investing and learning and looking into the Bible, asking very important, very critical questions questioning teaching and weighing it out is this is this really what the Bible says? And that's again, that's that's where we're at, where we just need to be encouraged by zeal but still be honest that God's foundation is still firmly set and we, we need to be aware of that and firm in that. So and discussing salvation and baptism is also very good because it oftentimes, in my experience, more often than not, leads into a bigger conversation on the general nature of faith. Turn to John chapter 9, and I want to show you an example where we see this with Jesus. So John is right before the book of Acts, and we see an instance here of Jesus doing something in a way to deliberately challenge the Jewish understanding of the Sabbath and work, and we're looking at this because I think this relates to a misunderstanding of faith, that faith only saves, you can't do anything at all. And to imply that there is any action at all is to say that you are earning salvation by works. Anyway, it leads into a bigger conversation on, well, what what is faith biblically? And here is an example that I think is very helpful. John chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, Jesus finds a man who had been blind from birth, and here's what he does to heal him. When he had said this, he spat on the ground, made clay of the spittle, and applied clay to his eyes. And mind you, verse 14, this is a Sabbath. And so Jesus is very clearly, seemingly, doing this in a way where he is deliberately doing work. He's making clay with his spit, with, the, uh, with the, the dirt. And then he applies the clay to his eyes, verse 7, and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which translated means sense. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. So not only does Jesus seemingly do work on the Sabbath, but then he tells this other person to, again, seemingly do work on the Sabbath. He says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Now, could Jesus have healed this man with only his spoken word? He did it many times. And I think the point was not just for the sake of the man, but I want you to see now verse 15. They they brought this man to the Pharisees, And it was a Sabbath day. And look at verse 15. And the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. He said to them, he applied clay to my eyes and I washed and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Stop there. What was the problem? Was the problem that Jesus, whoopsie, he violated the Sabbath and maybe didn't realize it. Or is that they had a misunderstanding, a fundamental misunderstanding of the sabbath and what faith is how that relates to the sabbath and was it that their assumption about jesus exposed this severe misunderstanding and that was good for that to be exposed and then the conversations that come from this with both the blind man and the pharisees and later jesus all of these things are good because it exposes the problem where these Pharisees are not going to be able to see Jesus and his will in the right way unless this is rectified, right? So again, we may, in talking about baptism, need to have a bigger conversation about faith, and that that is very good, because that oftentimes is the underlying problem, a misunderstanding of what faith is. Think about this. Was this man healed of his blindness by his works or by his faith? And I'll tell you, every time I look at any example like this in the Bible and I'm studying with someone who believes baptism is a work, can't have anything to do with salvation, they will always say, well, it's his faith. i say, there you go. But didn't he do something? Didn't he have to go and wash? Didn't, he, didn't Jesus apply the clay? And, you know, and then it's like, well, ah, wait, wait a minute. It's like, no, it's simple. He was saved by his faith. And that faith involved trusting a promise, trusting the word, and doing the thing that connected him to the fulfillment of of the promise. So what we're going to do is look at what the Bible says about the purpose of baptism. You know, I think it's fair that since baptism is a biblical concept, that we ought to let the Bible define the purpose of baptism, right? And so that's what we're going to do. And this is how I may, if I have an opportunity to be sitting with someone and we are able to open our Bibles or talk, I'll just ask them very simple questions about this. And we're going to look at instances with people and these are very pivotal moments right so we're going to look at john the baptist jesus peter and paul and these are all pivotal moments john the baptist preparing people for jesus obviously jesus and what he says is pretty pivotal peter we're going to look at acts chapter two and that's another pivotal moment it's a very defining moment in the history of the church and then we're going to look at the conversion of saul when he saw jesus on the damascus road and what happened to him and again not only are we looking at what does the Bible say itself about the purpose of baptism, and what do we see consistently in these pivotal moments, clearly and consistently said about the purpose of baptism. Let's start in Mark 1, 1, 1 through 5. Mark 1, 1 through 5. So Mark 1, verse 1 says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way? The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. So what did John teach on the purpose of baptism? Well, you look at verse 4. He was preaching a baptism of repentance that was for what? The forgiveness of sins. And so the question is, this is what I'll ask people. The people who are being baptized by John, what did they believe they were receiving when they were being baptized? You know, it's very simple. They believed they were receiving the forgiveness of sins. And Either you have to look away from the text and not read it and say something else, or you just have to honestly look at the text, simply slow down, press the language. What did they believe was happening when they were baptized? Well, if they believed they were receiving forgiveness of sins in this baptism, was John preparing people to think that Jesus would save them by merit of works or by faith? And so again, I think we run into an inconsistency where I don't think John is setting a false foundation here, right? And so John preparing the people for Jesus, his teaching and faith and salvation, what is a major part of that? Baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So again, you just kind of plant that and, you know, we establish that. Look at chapter 11. This is kind of a speed bump on the way. But Mark 11, this is long after John the Baptist was long dead. Um, Jesus ends up to the religious teachers who had not accepted John's baptism. He holds them to it. and This, this is long after John had already been gone, dead. Uh, Mark 11, 27 through 33. So this is when Jesus, at the end of his life now in Jerusalem, they came again to Jerusalem and as he was walking in the temple, The chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and began saying to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question and you answer me. And then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. They began reasoning among themselves saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Then why did you not believe him? But shall we say from men? They were afraid of the people for everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. Answering Jesus, they said, "Mm, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. These are simple things, right? Now, why were they having so much trouble with Jesus? Jesus takes them all the way back to John's baptism. You know, there's things that a person may struggle with in the Bible where I think really what's going on, if we just get back to the foundation we can clarify things on a very fundamental level that make the rest of the Bible much easier to grasp. Things like, you know, common doctrine, once saved, always saved, and these other things. A lot of times it's, we're just starting with the wrong foundation. And if we just let God define our foundation, then we can learn how to deal with some of these other things. And so the Pharisees are challenging Jesus and he instead challenges them, hey, let's get back all the way to John's baptism and what you did with that. And verse 31, they weren't baptized with John's baptism. And verse 33, they were not honest about that. By the way, I'm not always, I don't always do this, but there are times in Bible studies where I do think it's profitable. If someone is being dishonest with things that are very simply said in the Bible, it can be really good just to say that. Like you're just, you're not being honest with what this is saying. You know, I think we both see what this is saying and you're just not dealing with it. Pharisees here, scribes, elders, they were not being honest with Jesus' question or John's baptism. And they had to deal with that and Jesus was not going to let them get around that. Well, Mark 16. Sometimes we need to bring people back to basics and that, that can be challenging. But it's, again, Jesus did that and I think that's an example for us that very often we need to do that, right? So, Mark 16, 16. What I What I like to tell people is I believe what Jesus said about baptism. And I want to believe exactly what Jesus said about it. So, let's see what Jesus said about the purpose of baptism. Mark 16, verse 16. Now let's start in verse 15. And he, he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. So what did Jesus teach on the purpose of baptism? And of everything he could have brought up, he could have said, he who believes and repents shall be saved. You know, there's all of these other things. He who believes and confesses me as Lord shall be saved. Of everything he could have said, he sticks baptism with belief before salvation. And notice, he could have said this in a different order, and he didn't. He did not say, he who believes shall be saved and be baptized, Right? Jesus says, he who believes and has been baptized shall be saved. Now, another thing that will happen, happen very often, and this is, just, this is more me talking about my experience that I run into consistently, someone will then immediately say, well, baptism's not mentioned in the second part of the phrase, right? He says, he who disbelieves shall be condemned. Where's baptism there? Well, there's a couple things. One, baptism depends on belief to hold any value at all, right? So, of course, you don't believe. Nothing else really matters, right? secondly and i think this is very simple the second part of the verse is telling us how to be condemned and that's not what we're looking at how to do that in the first part of the sentence he's telling us how to be saved so let's let's focus on that right so he says well how to be saved believe and be baptized and you'll be saved right so then a question i like to ask is does jesus's teaching here connect with what peter is going to teach in acts chapter 2 because not only is this pivotal—that of everything Jesus says, he says, "He who believes and will be, and, ba- and he who believes and is baptized shall be saved." But I think we have to ask the question: as this is leading into Acts chapter two, arguably one of the most pivotal moments in history and in the Bible, will Peter's teaching connect consistently with what Jesus seems to be saying here? So let's go there. Acts chapter two, verse thirty-six through forty-one. You know, and you've, you've heard me say before, for those of you who are members here, that Acts chapter 2 is, it is the hub of the Bible. I mean, it's, it's where everything ultimately comes together. You know, ultimately Jesus died and came to build his church, and here is where the foundation is set, right? So you, you can't overstate the importance of understanding Acts chapter 2. And so whatever is taught here about how these initial believers are saved is very important. Verse 36, this is where Peter is finishing the very first sermon about Jesus having died and risen from the dead to ascend to heaven to rule there. Verse 36, therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? By the way, you pause there, what a question. To me, that is the question of all questions, and oftentimes in studies, I'll stop there and say, what are they asking, right? They're asking, what do we need to do to be saved? How do we we find rescue and salvation from the situation that you're clearly saying that we're in? So whatever Peter is about to say is going to answer this question, what do we need to do to be saved, to be rescued? Verse 38, Peter said to them, repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to Himself. With many other words, He solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received His word were baptized. And that day, there were added about 3,000 souls. So verse 38, the initial question again, what did Peter teach on the purpose of baptism? What did, what did, he, um, what did he give as a, a reason for why they needed to be baptized? Well, very simply in verse 38, they're to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, and then they would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So again, I'll ask this question, and I find this to be very helpful in conversation. What did those being baptized believe was happening? Or what did they believe they were receiving when they were being baptized? What did they believe about that? And undeniably, again, you either have to look away from the text and try to deviate from the conversation, or you just have to honestly say, I mean, here, they, they believed they were receiving the forgiveness of sins when they were being baptized, right? So then you say, okay, well, not before, right? Did they believe they were saved before they were baptized? And of course, very simply, well, no, they believed they were receiving these things at the point when they were being baptized. So, simple question. Does this align with what Jesus taught in Mark 16, 16? Is there consistency there? Does that seem to connect and, and fit together? And does this kind of help clarify why John the Baptist, to prepare people for Jesus was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins and why that would have been a pivotal point. So you have John the Baptist teaching a baptism for the forgiveness of sins. You have Jesus in his resurrection saying he who believes and is baptized shall be saved. Then you have Peter after the first sermon answering the golden question saying baptism was for the remission of sins. Where does that leave us? Well, well, what about the Apostle Paul? I mean, I would think that Paul, who wrote the majority of the letters to Christians, you know, whatever happened to him is going to be a model for us, right? I mean, he wrote about salvation very consistently. So what did Paul believe was the purpose of baptism? We, we read about him being baptized. So let's, let's turn to Acts 22, where Paul, on trial, um, is giving a recounting of when he was converted. And we're going to read this this whole section here in Acts 22 um, all the way through 1 through 16. So Acts chapter 22. So what did Paul Paul believe was the purpose of his baptism? Acts 22. Brethren and fathers, hear my defense, which I now offer to you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet. and, And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, But brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons, as also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify. From them, I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished, But it happened that as I was on my way approaching Damascus about noontime, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I said, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me saw the light, to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Get up and go into Damascus, and there you will be told of all that has been appointed for you to do. But since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. A certain Ananias, a man who is devout by the standard of the law and well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me, and standing near said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. At that very time I looked up at him. And he said, The God of our fathers has appeared to you, or has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Now why do you delight? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins calling on his name. So something that I think is important when you're putting the pieces together here in Acts 9, it clarifies that after Paul saw the Lord, so he he had confessed Jesus as Lord, And for three days, he was blind. And it clarifies that he had been praying through that three-day period. So Paul was confessing Jesus as Lord. He was praying. But when did Paul believe that he had finally received the forgiveness of his sins? Was it because he said a prayer? Was it when he confessed Jesus as Lord initially? When was it here that Paul nails down when he believed he received the forgiveness of sins? I think very clearly you see it in verse 16. So again, just my question that I ask is, you know, what did Paul believe was the purpose of his baptism? What did he believe was happening? What did he believe God was doing when he was baptized? And again, just like the other instances, either you look at the text and you just read it and are honest with it, or you've got to deviate and you know, look away, say something else, start some other conversation, or just hold to the text and say, he believed he was being baptized to wash away his sins. That's that's the point Paul believed he was being baptized. So not before, not when he was praying, not when he had that experience seeing Jesus in the bright light and understanding him to be Lord. And then the other question I have then is, well, this, this is a pretty pivotal moment. You know, the Apostle Paul being converted who wrote to Christians, um, does this align with what Jesus taught? Does this align with what Peter taught? about salvation and the purpose of baptism and if it does where does that leave us right so the Bible's consistent it's clear and i think these things are said as clearly as they can be said in any language i mean this is very straightforward right so where does where does that leave us so it's not that this is a mystery it's not that this is hidden information again these are pivotal points obvious points And so I think the hard thing is kind of breaking someone out of a mold of preconceived understanding and just trying to help people just read the text, think about what it's saying, look at how consistent it is. And even if you can only bring up one of these instances, even just one of them, I think holds incredible value to say, hey, have you thought about what Peter said about baptism and salvation? Or hey, what about... The Apostle Paul. Maybe if you looked into that, we could talk more about it. If you go and read it, you can come back and we can talk more about it. Um, but again, just like Paul with the people at Ephesus who were disciples, this is important to try to figure out somehow, very lovingly, how do we bring the, these things up in conversation. I want to talk about just one one follow-up, just one. I think there are a lot of um, potential things that could be brought up that a question someone might have, or um, I don't know, a, an exception that a person may have questions about, and that's and that's good. That's totally fine. You know, we can talk about different um, parts of Scripture, about faith, about any of these things. Are, are are totally open, and it's good to study them. So, what about Cornelius? And in Acts chapter 10, if you'll turn to Acts chapter 10, undeniably. Cornelius, the Holy Spirit, fell on him before he was baptized. And so what, in, again, this is just my experience. Um, you have people who will say, well, Cornelius received the Spirit before being baptized, so obviously it's not consistent, right? There must be exceptions to this seeming rule that we're, we're looking at here. So let's, let's think about that. Let's look at Acts chapter 10, uh, 44 through 48. This is kind of skipping to the end of the interaction And Peter has come to Cornelius, a Gentile audience, the first, seemingly, the first Gentile audience to be taught the gospel. And here's what happens in verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay on for a few days. So again, verse 45, um, absolutely, they received the Spirit and it was poured out before they were baptized. So let's, let's think about this. In verse 47, there's only two times in the book of Acts, only two where the Holy Spirit was poured out in this way. The first time is what Peter refers to in verse 47. Surely no one can refuse water, the water, for these to be baptized to receive the Holy Spirit, just as we did. Can he? Um, chapter 11, verse 17 also references this. Peter again is reflecting. He says, "Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift." as he gave to us also after believing in the lord jesus christ to his i that i could stand in god's way so he references the time where the holy spirit was poured out in the events of acts chapter two so i think it's fair what did that mean what did that signify in acts chapter two when the spirit was poured out did that directly save or was it a signal Did the spirit save people directly when he was poured out and they were speaking in tongues? Or was it a signal that the salvation that God had been prophesying was now available? If it was a signal that salvation was now available, I think we have something that fits perfectly together. That in Acts chapter 2, the spirit was poured out. Peter, the apostles, saw this as a signal that the prophesied time of the Messiah and salvation has now come. It is now available. And so what did they do to receive it? Acts chapter 2, verse 38. They needed to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, and they would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And what Peter is seeing here is, just like God did for the Jewish people, in the exact same way now, he's done it also for the Gentile people. And so that salvation that the Gent or the salvation that the Jewish people thought was exclusive to them, God was demonstrating himself that that same prophesied salvation was not just for the Jews, but in equal measure now for the Gentiles as well. Therefore, in verse 48, he orders them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Well, what's the purpose of that baptism? And again, we go back to Acts chapter 2, verse 38. They were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. What is baptism in the name of Jesus Christ? What does that mean? What is that for? And we go back to Acts chapter 2, where Peter said, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Why was Peter so urgent about this immediately when he saw the Spirit being poured out on them? Because it signaled... Here are people, salvation is available to us, or available to them in the same way it was available to us when this sign was given of salvation. So, I ask, where does this leave you? Just like in Acts 18, 19, there are times where a person may have been baptized before and that baptism was not biblical. Maybe you were believing you were baptized, or Saved through a prayer or through just your faith at some point, ambiguously. And you were baptized later just because it was maybe a sign of commitment or um, a symbol of what had already happened to you before, what you believed happened to you before. And if that's where you are, the the hard reality is, if, if, if you see that that's the situation you're in, then you still need to receive salvation and the gift of the Holy Spirit, the method that God has chosen. Because ultimately, water is not what saves, but it's faith in the working of God. And it's through that faith, through the yielding of that faith, that God will save a person when they're baptized. He will grant them the remission of their sins to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So we leave this invitation time as an open invitation um, that if anyone is convicted by the message, by what the Bible says, I would at the very least encourage you, again, if, if this is something you're hearing for the first time or still wrestling with, Let's talk more about it. Not just me, any, any of the members here would, would love to talk more about these things to be challenged on them and to continue to study through them. If there's anything else we can do for you this morning, please bring it forward while we stand and sing the invitation song.